right, so if you would turn to Matthew chapter 21. Today's Bible study is called the parousia, which is a strange word. I know I found out what this word means, and it really uh, tripped me out. And so that's the basis of our study uh, today. So just to let you guys know, uh, first of all, Palm Sunday. Like, um, for me, growing up, when I was a kid, we were Catholic growing up. And so Palm Sunday is very a very important day for the Catholic um, faith. And um, But for me, it was always just that. Like, I didn't learn anything about really what happened. All I knew is that that's when Jesus showed up and the people were waving palm leaves in my imagination. That's what was going on. And so that's when Jesus showed up uh, into Jerusalem. And, uh, a, you know, he was on a donkey, as you guys have seen, like, popular pictures portrayed of him on a donkey. And he's riding in, and people are waving palm leaves. And and then he comes in, and it's right before Easter. And then on Easter, I got an Easter basket. And so that's pretty much the extent of what all that meant to me as a kid. And so putting this study together, you know, I don't normally teach topical studies, to be honest with you. I, I go, like, just through a book and teach whatever's next on the menu, so to speak. And um, so I was, I was, it was a challenge. It was good. It was a new, it was exciting, and it was a new challenge to do a, a study on Palm Sunday. So I start digging. I'm like, oh, let's first, let's just get to the bottom of what Palm Sunday is. And so um, it's really quite interesting when you start looking into it. Today's Bible study is called the parousia, and what that means is that's a term that's used in this time for the return of a king. So like if a king was away at war, when um, he would return, he would have, there would be four major things that have to happen for a parousia. The first would be the king's monumental approach. And when I say monumental, it, it, they, kings would set this up like they look I'm going to return on this day make sure you have all the people out there make sure like the trumpets are blown so that when I'm coming everybody knows so that has to be a part of a parousia also um, the public celebration so like they would have music set up and there would be songs that they wanted to sing in particular and if you guys want a little illustration in your mind at how big a parousia can be. You might remember the Walt Disney movie Aladdin, and you guys remember Prince Ali, you know, and he comes up and it's got all the, he's got all the camels, he's got all the whatever, you know? And so um, that would be kind of like a parousia, right? So the music, the songs would be sung. Also, he'd have to have an entrance through the main gate. Also, like you guys remember that in the movie, he comes to the main way and all the people are watching. So an entrance through the main gate. And then what you didn't see in Aladdin, which is part of a parousia, would be um, the clint, like the removal of anything pagan that like crept in while the while the king was away. So if he showed up and there was like some foreign, you know, like artifacts on the walls or something, he would go and he would tear all that stuff down. And usually in these parousias that they like planned out, they would have like a mock like idol, like something that he would burn or break or something like that. And this was all ceremonial. This was like the way it had been done. And so Jesus's entry on Palm Sunday is no exception. It is a parousia. But the weird, not weird, the interesting thing to me is that this parousia is not planned. It is not like scripted. It's 100% reaction based it is in always a supernatural thing but it comes about naturally if you know what i mean like this isn't something that that jesus was like all right guys you know set it all up when i show up you know jesus is hated by a lot of people and that's what makes this super interesting about his approach and the reaction that he gets and i want to pick apart a little bit why that reaction happened because i think in our mind we just see it like another crazy, weird miracle, and we never stop and think, like, what were people thinking when they were just there, and, you know, Jesus, who's kind of hated by the religious leaders and by the leadership of the town and the city at that time, why is it that their reaction would be this way? Like, what, like, what kind of a phenomenon is taking place that people would just start 
taking their clothes and garments and laying them on the floor for Jesus, who's riding in on a donkey, which isn't a glorious animal by any means. And then, you know, waving palm leaves and putting palm leaves down um, for him to walk into the main gates of the most powerful place. And then, you know, everything that follows is, is just kind of a thing that we always hear as Christians happened. And you never stop and ask yourself, like, well, why? And what was the reasoning for that? So here's where we find ourselves today. Chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 1. So now when they drew near and came to Bethphage. Now, that word can be pronounced a couple of different ways. It could be, you may have heard pastors pronounce it, uh, Bethphage, Bethpage, Bethpagey. Um, I don't really know exactly which one. To me, Bethphage looked the best. Uh, Fagy sounded weird to me, and so Beth. Phage, P-H, kind of makes an F sound. So there you go. Uh, uh, forgive me if I don't know the exact pronunciation because I've heard a lot of pastors say it differently. But what is interesting about that word, Beth Phage, is what it means, right? So that word means the house of the early figs or the house of unripe figs. So early or unripe, meaning it isn't, it isn't well yet to pick off the tree. If you ever picked a, you know, something before it was ripe and you take a bite of it, it's bitter. And so the, that's kind of a weird thing, right? Like, why was this place called that? The, the house of the unripe figs. And I'm getting this all from just what that word Bethphage means. Now, where it's located, as you see in verse 1, is at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sends two of his disciples, right? Now, I do want to point out a couple of things that are super interesting about why this place was named Bethphage, right? So first of all, um, the religious people that were running this place, as many religious organizations do, they, they sat there and must have been like, man, what are we going to name our organization? You know, I wanted to mean something important. I wanted to be, you know, for this reason or for that reason. And they come up with all these ideas. So what they did is they named it the house of the unripe figs after the idea that in the garden, it was the ripe fruit that Eve was tempted with. I don't know if you guys remember way back in Genesis, it says the serpent was tempting her and then she looked at it and saw that it was, it was luscious to eat. And so she partook of it, right? And so these guys go and they're like, oh, we're going to name this place the house of the unripe fruit to suggest that there will be no room for temptation here in this place. And so it's a very, like, you know, poignant decision to name it that. Now, this is also something really interesting. You guys know this who are Christians, is that the people who were running the religious organization at the time of Christ, they didn't really have the heart of God. They just had the religious aspect of it. And so they named this place something that sounds ultra holy, but it's not. And that's exactly what we unfortunately do with Christianity sometimes. Is we take something and turn it into a ceremony or a title or a name. And then the ceremony itself becomes more important than the reason why the ceremony was called that. And I want you guys to remember that it was called Beth Fig, that it was called the House of the Young Figs or House of the Unripe Figs. Because there's going to be a really unique thing that Jesus does concerning that title later on. But we'll get there. That's where he's at, right? So what's happening? He draws near. He's at this place called the House of the Unripe Figs. And this was a place where they executed judgment. They, they tried to judge. This is interesting. I want to let you guys know this. They tried to judge stuff before it got into the city. Yeah, another reason why they called it the house of the unripe figs is because they wanted to catch things before it came into full bloom. In other words, if somebody was coming into the city and they had like false motives, sometimes it happens in ministry, you'll have people that will show up and they'll be like, oh man, I'm just here to be a part of what God's doing and they have a lot to offer, but like you can spot that there's something there that's not right. And so they had this idea that they would catch something before it was in full bloom, right? 
And so Jesus comes through this way by no coincidence. And then he tells his disciples, watch, verse 2. He sends his disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite to you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loosen them and bring them to me. Now notice, them, both, a colt and a donkey. Now, I want to bring this out up front right away. In some of the other Gospels, it records a colt. In some of the other Gospels, it records just a donkey. And Matthew's where it records both of them. Now, what's interesting, though, is the prophecy about it says um, that Jesus is a king who comes to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, comma, a colt, a foal of the donkey. So to fulfill the prophecy, he, he kind of needs both, even though in the Old Testament, it makes it sound like those two animals are one. Now, I don't know, I'm just speculating, if maybe throughout the time between the Old Testament and Jesus' time, if maybe the animals kind of were separated into two different species where they once were one. I don't know that for certain. I know that that happens with species, right? Like if you take a Chihuahua and you take a you know, Great Dane, they're both dogs, but they don't look alike at all, right? So, but in order for Jesus to fulfill this prophecy, he needs both, right? So he gets both, and that's kind of interesting to me. In verse 2, if you were to look at um, the Old Testament in Kings and or uh, Zechariah chapter 9, you'd find that the return of a king is referred to as a parousia. Right? That's what I call today. A return of the king is referred to as a parousia. And as I said to you guys, it has to include all four of those things. Now, what we're going to see in the scripture today is that all four of those things are fulfilled um, in Christ's return. So uh, this is something that I noticed that was super interesting about a donkey and a colt. First of all, a colt is a war animal. And a donkey is not a war animal. It's a work animal, and it is not as glorious as a colt. Um, another interesting thing that you guys might want to keep in mind is that a king should own his own donkey and his own colt traditionally. So when Jesus sends for this colt and donkey, he sends, basically, go and take this. Now... <laughs> That's not, when we teach our kids or when we're little and we're taught not to steal, we're like, hey, you don't take something that doesn't belong to you. You don't, you know, and the reason that's, that's sin, that's stealing, right? We teach little ones that. But here Jesus is instructing his disciples to go and to take a donkey and a colt. But then he says something interesting. He's like, watch, look at verse 3. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord is in need of it, and immediately he will send them. Now notice if something's being sent, it's not being stolen, it's not being taken. So Jesus knew that this person would come out and ask, hey, what are you doing? Now here's, what, here's my speculation. Could it be, is it possible that this guy raised this donkey and this colt? for a specific reason that the Lord had showed him? Why is it that a man would allow some guys, some random people to come and take something that belongs to him and, and yet change his mind when he's like, hey, what are you doing? Because if he's going to intercept them, then clearly he would have stopped someone else from taking it. And so Jesus says, hey, when you get intercepted, make sure you tell them this exact phrase. Now, whenever you see in the Bible somebody say, tell them this exact phrase, it means that that person has been pre-prepared, right? Like Mary naming Jesus, Jesus. That's pre-prepared. When this happens, you'll know to do this. And so this person, literally their ministry was to raise a donkey and a colt for Jesus, which means it probably never belonged to anybody else. And so it was for Jesus, and it was his. This king, who had no place to rest his head, meaning he had no house, and who had no ki a kingdom established by men, 
and who was the Bible refers to as a man of sorrows, but who is the true king of kings, had prepared for him his own royal donkey and colt. And that is mind-blowing to me when I searched that out and found it out. And so verse 4. All this was done that it might be, be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, comma, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went, verse 6, and did just as Jesus commanded them. Now prophecy is fulfilled in these verses right here, but I want to point out something that is super interesting about prophecy in itself. So you guys have heard many pastors say before, like, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, you know, like, didn't you know the evidence that Jesus is real is because of the fulfillment of prophecy over his life? And you hear that kind of stuff and you're like, okay, but what does that mean? Now, this is what's interesting about prophecy. Prophecy is not, this is how it needs to happen, so we'll make it happen that way. Prophecy is, this is how it's going to happen. And I want to make that absolutely clear because you can see in the example that we're going to see, which all of this is prophecy fulfilled, that Jesus isn't telling his disciples and telling people to do stuff so the prophecy is fulfilled. If you think of it this way, Jesus has to do this and has to do that so the prophecy is fulfilled, then what you end up with is you end up with the idea that he is trying to make himself to fulfill what he's supposed to be. But that's not the case. True prophecy is what happens when the foretelling is about what is going to happen. Not what has to happen, what is going to happen. And there's a difference there. Because when men try to fulfill things, they always try to fulfill them for what has to happen. Men of war, uh, today government, they look at the scenario, they analyze it, and they say, man, in order for this to work, this has to happen. And so they put all their efforts to make it happen. Now listen, this is where a lot of ministries make mistakes as well. They have an idea in their mind, maybe a successful church that they grew up in, maybe a church that they've seen successful. And they come up with these ideas, these plans, looking at what God has done before. And they say to themselves, listen, this stuff has to happen. We need to have a children's ministry. We need to have a worship leader. We need to have ushers. We need to have these things. These things have to happen. And you know what? As long as that is the mentality, it will always be men trying to make sure that they fit the mold of God. But in reality, here, you don't see that example in Jesus. You see that Jesus is just doing. And by him just doing, it is fulfilling the prophecy about him. He's not trying to make the prophecy fit him. The prophecy's about him. He's just doing. And I want to encourage you guys also in your lives, in your marriages, in your homes, and in your ministry, that you would be people who allow God to work through your life so that you can see what he has planned for your life. Not try to make something happen that fits what your expectation of what it's supposed to be. And let me tell you, that's where a lot of us go astray in our own hearts. I struggle with this on my own as well. I look at my marriage, I look at my daughter, I look at my life and I say, Lord, these things have to be. It has to change. It has to be this. And let me tell you something, as I go before the Lord and as I am perplexed, as I, I bend myself in prayer to seek him and ask his favor and ask him to do things and fix things, you know what my answer is from God? Mike, you can't do this. Only I can do this. And so it's less about you telling me what has to happen and more about you obeying what I'm telling you to do. And now all of a sudden it starts to change from you being a person that is aware of everything God is doing to you just being a person who obeys what God's telling you as an individual. Now, how often do we argue with God about what he's telling us individually in the name of what we know he needs to do? Lord, you got to change my spouse, you got to change my kids, you got to change my job, you got to change my scenario. Instead of saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
And when God tells you to do something, whether you can see how that directly affects everything else or not, that's the thing, the only thing you need to do. And here you have the disciples just obeying the Lord. You know what else is interesting about this in verse 6 where it says, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. Your obedience to God is not so is so much bigger than the outcome that you would expect or that you would want to happen. I'll say that again. Your obedience to God is so much bigger than the outcome that you would expect or want to happen. Listen. Your life needs to be more about obedience and surrender and less about wondering what blessings you're going to get or when your trial is going to be over. And here's the reason why. Imagine if the disciples, imagine this. Imagine if when Jesus says, go, get the donkey, get the colt. If anybody interrupts you, tell them it's for me and they'll give it to you. And imagine if they're like, in their obedience, hey, Lord, what's in it for us? Or maybe one of them would be like, hey, by the way, my left foot's been bothering me a lot, you know. I was hoping that when I went and did this, maybe out of obedience to you, you could heal my left foot. Do you see how, how minute-minded that sounds if I interjected that into the text right now? Do you see how out of place that feels? Listen, that's how out of place it is when the Lord is being clear to us about what he's asking of us. And we're like, hey, yeah, I know you're trying to tell me something right now, Lord. I know you're trying to interrupt me, but listen, I, I need you to know something before you get it any further, Lord. Uh, listen, you got to fix this scenario over here. Have you noticed? I don't think you've been noticing, Lord. Take a look at what's happening over here. Or, Lord, I, I want to pay attention, but I, I can't even listen. I can't even hear what you're trying to say to me because I'm so scared of, the, of this potential cancer or potential sickness or whatever it is that seems to be looming and closing in on me. And it's like, you have no idea what God is doing. And the disciples didn't know what he was doing. They just had to make a decision. Were they going to obey or not obey? And you know what's crazy? If you just stop, and I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but if you just stop for a second, I think almost every one of you can think about what the Lord has been putting on your heart that needs to change or that you need to do. And what always interrupts that thought and that conversation between us and God is all the things we need him to do. You got to fix this, Lord. You got to change that. You got to do this. And the Lord's like, you ever have your kids and you don't have the time to explain to them the long version of why you're telling them to do something? Like, look, just stand here and hold this. But why? What's it good? Just, just, you'll see. Just hold this. But this is not what I want. It's like, dude, you don't understand. Watch. You'll see. Just do it. Just do what I'm telling you to do and you'll see, you know. And the Lord, think about that. Like, he knows what's going on. He, he, you're not telling him something he doesn't see. The disciples had to make a decision to be obedient, and they did. They brought the donkey, verse 7 says. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. Now, that's kind of, i got to be real with you guys. So I'm reading that. Which one, Lord? Like, set the, what do you mean set the clothes on them, set him on them? Was he, like, straddling two, two animals? You know, like, part, was he, like, holding them like, a, like jet skis, and he's, like, standing on one foot on a, on a donkey, the other one on a colt? I don't think so. I'm, listen, I'm going to go on a limb and say I'm pretty sure he's riding the donkey. I'm pretty sure he's riding the donkey. Here's the reason why. Um, because I kind of know Jesus, and you do too when you spend time with him. And one of the things he's already taught you by this point, when you're reading this just straight through, one of the things he already told you is that he kind of does things backwards to the way that men expect it, right? It's like when everybody's like, oh, like notice Jesus is never like, where's my crown? You know, gather my crown, you know? Never. He's never like, go and fetch me some wine, you know, or go and fetch. He's always like, I'll serve, I'll serve you guys. Just bring the water. I'll, I'll, I'll make it happen. They're like, oh, but there's no more wine for the party. Just bring the water. I got it. Don't worry about it. So non-traditional. 
He's doing things constantly that is shaking up the religious people, which is why they disapprove of him. And we have those thoughts too. When we look at pastors, or we look at teachers, or we look at worship leaders and say, oh, you probably shouldn't dress like that. You, know, you probably shouldn't. Always focusing on the religiosity that we creep into our own lives. So Jesus, why do I believe fully he's on a donkey? Well, because the cult is a war animal. Now, he, it, the Bible does tell us that he's going to come on a horse. But that's the second parosia. Remember, we just learned what a parosia is. Did you know that Jesus, here's a crazy little, little detour for you guys real quick in parentheses. You know the reason why the Jews couldn't accept Jesus when he showed up first? Is because he showed up as a lamb. Now, in their prophecies, it was like, he'll be like a suffering servant. He'll be like a lamb to the slaughter. But it also said about his prophecy, he's going to be a raging lion. He's going to be the warlord. And he's going to take the government. Both of those things are in the prophecy about the Savior. And you know what always happens to people when they're reading prophecies? And it always happens to us, too, when we're reading the Bible? Is we skim right past the things that we don't want to see. And we hide deep in our heart and memory banks all those things we want to know. Right? Like, you always see it. I, I always notice when I used to teach at, like, uh, at like uh, some of the halfway houses, you know, where the drug and alcohol recovery places are. And you had the cholos there. And they always love the story where Jesus turns the tables over. Man, he just came in gangster like that, bro. Saw the tables. Was like, you fools are all wrong. And he turned the tables over. Because in their mind, there's a portrayal that they understand. Like, yeah, see, Jesus, like, I don't see him all weak, bro. Just dead on a cross. I see him, like, big and strong. You know, they always go there. So what are they doing? They're, they're portraying a version of Jesus that they like. But you know what they're going to have? They're going to have to read the part where he's just suffering, not saying a word, taking a beating. He just made himself nobody. Then you have people that do the opposite, right? They want to be passive. They just they hate all violence. They, they don't like anything negative. They, they think everything should be, you know, flowers, and there should be no, no fighting, and there should be no, none of this masculinity, toxic max, masculinity. You know, we're against that stuff. And, and then they got to look at, they got to face the scripture where Jesus goes in, turning tables over. Here's the truth. Jesus isn't to be molded to your preference. We look at Jesus and observe him, and we learn about who he is. And in times, you're called to be humbled, and in times, you're called to be bold. But what Jesus isn't doing is he isn't like, yeah, all these people would really like it if I was really mean right now or really bold. Yeah, let me do that for them, you know. Or all these people would really like it if I was just really passive right now. So, you know, I'm not going to say anything. You know, that, that'll really make the ministry real popular if I give them what they want. No, dude. It's not in him. It shouldn't be in us. Right? And so they bring the donkey to him, and as I was saying, I believe that he was sitting on the donkey. Because the scripture says in Zechariah, lowly he is sitting on a donkey. Right? The prophecy about him. Now look at this. I don't know if you noticed, but the first. Um, sign of, of, of true perosia just happened, and that is his monumental approach. The fact that he got his own donkey, his own colt, and now he's approaching this place. The second part of the perosia, um, his main entrance. Look at verse eight. And every and the sorry, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. Now, here's what's crazy about this. It's not planned. And here's what's really mind-blowing to me. So in the tradition of the Old Testament, the palm leaves are, are significant of royalty. They use them, the fan royalty. You guys have seen it even like in Egyptian pictures, like there's palm leaves. Or, you know, you may have had like the ant from... Um, from another country or something and they have the the picture and there's like palm leaves on the edges right it's like a, it's like a thing it's it, and it's handed down because it's known to be a part of royalty but the people that are doing it they're not a part of royalty 
They're not scripting this. They're not planning it. So guess what? They'd have pulled branches and anything off of anything around them. If it would have been that kind of tree, it would have been those kind of branches. They just were giving the clothes that they had, whatever they had. They were putting it down because they believed that this was going to be their king. And so it just so happens that the trees that are growing there have palm leaves on them. And they grab them off, and they, they chop them down, and they put them down. And it just so happens that it, before Jesus is the royalty plant. Right? So his main entrance, he's making his way in. Verse 9. Now verse 9 gives us the third part of the prosia, which is the public celebration. The thing that, remember, kings would have to set up. They'd be like, oh, when I get there, play this song. Make sure the guys have the horns and all that so they could do this song for me. Jesus doesn't do none of that. Jesus is simply just doing the will of his father. But he shows up. The people see him. And what do they start doing? Spontaneously, watch. Then the multitudes who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Ironically, the song that we sang today. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is a reaction. Before you guys got here, we did leadership. And one of the things we prayed for in our leadership as the worship guys were here as well was for our worship to be a response to God. Not just a demonstration or display, but a reaction to God. Why? Because that's in the likeness of what was happening here. These people weren't saying, hey, what do you guys think? Hosanna? Yeah, Hosanna. Let's do that one. They were like, this is just exaltation. It was as spontaneous as when you watch little children with something happening, and they start clapping, you know? And they just do it. Or they say, yay. I don't know who teaches little kids yay, but they all know it across the board. Yay, you know? And it's because it's natural. And I love it. I see it in my daughter whenever... She does something or something, she turns around, yay, you know, and, and it makes everybody else go, oh, yeah, yay, you know, even if it wasn't, they weren't going to do it. But that's because it's, it's um, contagious, spontaneous worship. It's contagious. That, that's what happened. People were excited. Verse, this, this kind of, I'm going to be honest with you, this, this next little section, it's kind of a, kind of bums me out a little bit because i'm like no wait what watch you'll see what i mean verse 10 and when he had come into jerusalem all the city was moved saying who is this that you guys are worshiping and the multitude said watch they nailed it this is the lord jesus no they didn't what does it say so the multitude said this is jesus the prophet from nazareth like no dude he's not a prophet it's the lord Wait a minute then. Wait a minute. Let's get this straight. So if the people that are doing all of these things, fulfilling prophecy for him to be the king and have a king's entry, don't even know who he is, why are they doing it? Why are they giving him the king's entrance? Here's what's crazy. Their response is probably selfish in nature. They have tyranny from the government. They have needs in their land. They're sick of the leadership that's there. Let's pick this guy. This guy seems different. He's been doing good stuff for people. Maybe he'll do more stuff for us. We hear about him healing people, blind people seeing. This guy does miracles. That's our guy. And you know what breaks my heart about that? got to be real with you guys. I'd say more often than not, more often than not, I see Christians treating them the same way. They're like, oh, God's so good. And I'm like, really? Yeah, he's so good. Uh, and why he was good is just because of the things that I got from him. My testimony for why God is so good, because of all the things that he gave me. And I'm like, I think he's more than that. What about the person who's like, yeah, I tried going to church. I tried going and asking the Lord for help. But you know, nothing changed. You know, my, my husband wouldn't change. So then I'm like waiting for them to finish the statement. Like, so I don't believe anymore. Wait, believing that Jesus is who he is all hinges on you getting what you want? 
That's, that's the breaking point of whether or not he's real. Listen, is something real because it is what we want? If somebody ever tumbled off a cliff and fell to their death and their loved ones showed up, would they, want, would they then say gravity's not real anymore to me because of what it cost me? Would people be able to say, I don't believe in gravity anymore because gravity took something from me? No, they wouldn't because why? Because gravity is real, whether it's convenient for your loss or not. And let me tell you something about Jesus. He is the way, the only way. And no one gets to the Father but through him. Now, it is mind-blowing to me that he is so gracious. It is mind-blowing to me that he's so good, that he's so loving. But I'm not in a race against other religions to say Christianity is the better one because of all the things you get. I know that Jesus is real because he's real, because he is the one. And sadly, a lot of times when we come to God and when we're seeking the Lord, we're seeking him because now things have gotten bad enough to just come and say, God, I need you to fix this. But it's so important that we recognize who he is, who he always has been. The Bible says that he'll never leave you, never forsake you. I don't know if you guys ever read that Footprints in the Sand thing, you know, hanging on the wall somewhere, but I have. Let me tell you, my mom hung that thing in my room when I was young. And before she died, it didn't mean that much to me. But I was young when my mom got sick. And later in life, I'd look at that thing and I'd see the footprints in the sand. And the one thing that always stands out to me is that when you see the one set of footprints and you say, Lord, why did you leave me at that point? And then the Lord tells you, that's when I carried you. That's when you ran out of strength and I carried you from then on. Listen, Jesus is for you. But you are like the child in the example I gave earlier. You stop asking why and telling him what to do and start asking what he's saying to you so that you may obey and watch his hand do miracles and amazing things in your life. These people didn't understand who Jesus was, and this is what's the biggest mind-blowing thing about the whole thing to me. So why did he get the king's entrance if the people who were giving it to him didn't know he was the king, didn't know he was the Lord? You know why he got that entrance? For us. Because he is our king and our Lord. And he deserves nothing less than the glorious entrance. And so what happens? The freaking stars align. Everything lines up for that king to get what's rightfully his, and he's not even trying to make it happen. I often tell young pastors the same thing. Listen, if God called you, you don't got to claim it, bro. You don't got to grab it. You got to just surrender. Because if God's called you to lead and God's called you to be a pastor, guess what? By you obeying and surrendering, you just become it. You just become what God called you to be. Stop trying to force the will of God in your life and start surrendering to the will of God in your life. And you will see that he will fulfill the thing that he intended for you to be. Many times as we try to achieve what it is that we're called to do, we end up putting hurdles in front of ourselves that he would have just naturally allowed to happen. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, and he's getting the entrance, even if the people who are giving it to him don't even realize it. The last part of a parousia is the cleansing of pagan paganism that might have crept in while the king was away. Then Jesus went into the temple, verse 12, of God, and drove all, all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now what's really kind of crazy to me about that is Jesus cleanses the, the temple of its paganism and I always think about how much we have allowed things to creep into our lives. They took, here's something trippy. Why did they have money changers there? Why did they have a big old sales table there that Jesus went to turn over? Why? Well, it started out for the right reason. 
you know, they go back to the Old Testament. And this is how any tradition is built. It's always the same. And you'll see it all the time. You start out with a reason that's good. Hey, the Bible says that we're supposed to be giving our best as a sacrifice. Right? So when you're, when you're, First fruit come in, you, you gather out the good ones so that you could put them in a sack and hide them under your bed and then eat them when no one's around. No, just kidding. That's not what you, you, you gather all the good ones to give those ones to the Lord, the good, the best. And that's the instruction in the Old Testament. So then the people running the temple are like, hey, people want to feel like they're offering the best. Right? Because Jesus... Because, I mean, because God demands the best from us. So let's give them an opportunity to give the best. Let's say their whole crop was garbage. The fruit flies got in and they all got ruined. And they're super embarrassed about what they're going to bring. But you know what? The owner of the land's a super uh, good farmer and he's got some money. And so he can come in, even though he's embarrassed about the way the crops turned out, he could come in and with also his first fruit, which is his money, he could buy a good fruit. And he could be like, hey, Lord, I'm giving you the best I could. And even if the best I could wasn't fruit because it got ruined, but I'm good with money, so I was able to buy something really good before you. I don't think there's anything really wrong yet. But guess what happens? It starts turning into a scheme. Now all of a sudden it's like, well, listen, like, that's not good enough. This, the markings of these doves here, these are the ones that, you know, are the most pleasing to the Lord. And they go, oh, okay, yeah. This week we're excited, guys, because I had enough money to buy one of the special doves that the Lord likes. Can you see the crookedness, how it creeps in? And that creeps in in so many other areas of our personal lives before the Lord. I was... um I was reminded as I was praying about this and looking at it, I was reminded by the Lord about the way that we purge unholiness out of our lives, right? And I was thinking about this because my daughter is, is three years old, and so it's tricky right now, right? Because, like, I want to take her to Disneyland and her to see all the memories I had, but, but then, like, I'll read stuff or I'll see stuff where they'll be like, hey, you got to be careful, you know, Disneyland's creeping stuff in with this, and I'll be like, okay, yeah, that's kind of true. But then I'm like, my three-year-old doesn't know about that stuff. Like, I'm just going to take her on my shoulder and ride a ride or whatever and take pictures with her. And, but then it, it gets, like, a little bit different. Like, little shows. I'm sitting down watching shows with her, and I'm like, hmm, that's kind of. So, so, so here, let me paint a little picture for you guys of how, how the enemy would creep into my life in the same manner with these doves and these offerings and sacrifices. Let's say I'm like, you know what? No Disney in my house. No cartoons at all. You know, my daughter's not going to wear none of that stuff. I don't know. This is the whatever voice. I don't know whose voice this is. This is that guy. Yeah. I'm not going to have none of this in my house. Right? But then, but then, I'm not praying with my daughter. I'm not loving her mom. And I'm not seeking the Lord with all my heart. So let me ask you this. A home with a father doesn't really love the Lord, a mother who doesn't really love the Lord, who isn't really giving of their lives to the Lord, but make sure the kids never watch The Simpsons once. Or, you know what, Lord? I don't know if I could see everything coming. I'm not sure I'm going to spot all the crafts of the enemy. And my daughter, she's going to have some strange temptations going to roll up on her somewhere in her life. Far be it from me, Lord, if she never knew in her heart that, you know what? My dad loved the Lord, and he did his best. We need to remember that the best thing that we can do for people around us is to truly be Christians, to love Jesus in our heart. No young person grows up and says, well, it's a good thing my parents shielded me from every possible terrible thing that was out there. You know what they say? You know what, dude? My, my, de- my mom loved the Lord. She prayed for me all the time. And I went through this crazy time in my life. But you know what? I never forgot that. And it drew me back. We are, you know how they teach, uh, I'm going to share this real quick and then I'll get off of that subject. 
you know how they teach uh, bankers to spot counterfeit bills? They just give them a bunch of the real ones constantly. Just constantly holding the real one. Constantly holding the real one. And then after a long time, they just throw one in that's different, a counterfeit. And that person's constantly feeling, feeling the, the real thing. All of a sudden, they're like, whoa, what is that? You could ask them, what is it? What about it? I don't know. I'm not sure what it is. It's just not right. So something's wrong with it. I don't know what it is. You could have a course on all the tactics that they're making to make false bills. But it's never going to be the same as when you know the real thing. You want to protect your children, your home, your own heart, your own mind from the things of the enemy. You know what you need to do? You need to dive into the Lord. Because that's how you get the real thing, the authentic thing, shining through your life. Did you know the Lord can shine through your life when you mess up? In your own home, the Lord can shine through your life where you make mistakes. You know when? When you look at a person, hey, you know what? I was wrong. I want to apologize for that. Sometimes you get more of the Lord pouring through your failures and your ability to humiliate yourself and seek the Lord. You get more of the Lord than if you just lived a perfect life. Because the Bible says that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And let me tell you, nobody has ever had a dad and said, oh, my dad was perfect. And that's why I came out so good. That's never happened. It's not going to happen. So stop thinking that you need to find a way to be the perfect person to fix everything. You just need to surrender more of yourself to the Lord. Here these people took something that started out good and they turned it into something it shouldn't be. Sacrifices were never about the quality. They were about the best that you could offer. And yet these religious people turned it into a quality thing. And it was never what it was supposed to be. So Jesus cleanses this place of all of that filth. Turns some tables over. Now you can understand why he's so mad. Because it's a misrepresentation of God's holiness. Every time you see God come down pretty extra harsh, it's always because he is being misrepresented. Misrepresented. Sorry, there's an extra little ED in there. Uh, what it happens, remember Moses strikes the rock? Moses was God's man, dude. He was God's man. Dude. So much so that God did his burial himself. The Bible says that God spoke to Moses face to face like a friend. And Moses was his boy. But where did Moses go wrong? See, people thought something wrong about God because of you, Moses. You made me seem like something I'm not. And I'm not down with that. To such a degree, you don't get to go to the promised land. You'll get to go to heaven. I'll do your funeral. You're still my boy, but you don't get to go to the promised land. It must have been devastating. But that's how serious it is. Do not misrepresent the Lord. And let me tell you, the one thing I'm not going to do in my own, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try my best not to do, God be with me, is to paint the Lord out to something that he's not. And I don't think that the Lord is nitpicking over little doves and looking at stuff and saying, oh, that kind of seems like it's got a little bit of this. Listen, be people who love the Lord. Live your lives as you love the Lord. And that way your children and those around you know, listen, my, my, my dad loves the Lord or my mom loves the Lord. That's what we're aiming for, right? All right, I said I wasn't going to harp on that any longer. So after he does these four things that qualify for a true parousia, then this happens. Verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus said to them, yeah. Have you not read? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfect praise. Perfect praise out of nursing infants? What is that? I'll tell you what. Instead of you... Figuring out the perfect way to do things, just make sure you do them in all honesty and realness of your heart. 
and not putting on a show of it. Just let it be sincere and from, from the heart, right? Then he left and went to the city of Bethany, and he lodged there. Now, I, you guys remember about the house of figs? I'm going to end with this. It's, super, it's pretty trippy to me. Now in the morning, he returned to the city. He was hungry. And seeing the fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. Now, here's what's interesting. <laughs> it's going to blow your mind. It blew my mind when I saw it, when I searched it out. Where he is, is a prominent location to where the leaders are there. And we're almost done here. A prominent location. And so when he does this, it's in a place where the leaders are going to see it. That's the fig tree. That's our fig tree at the place we call the house of the unripe figs. And Jesus goes to it and sees that there are no ripe figs on it. And he curses it and it dies and he says, and you'll never bear fruit again. This is the start of Jesus's purpose where he would become the only way that people could ever come close to God. But before he did that, who were the ones that represented the way you could get close to God? The religious leaders. And so that fig tree that they were was done. Their place, religious place, was called the house of the unripe figs. They had a fig tree there out where they could see it. Jesus goes to it and curses it because it's not bearing true fruit and says it'll never bear true fruit again. And never again would people come to these religious people to truly find God because Jesus was the only way and the only truth. And now we come through him alone and not through religious acrobats. And so don't let yourself fall into the idea of religious acrobats making yourself right before Jesus. Because it is, in fact, your surrender and relationship with Jesus that allows him to work in you and through you. And I think we're going to end right there.